Have you ever stopped to wonder if you're making a difference? Are the people you're friends with, are the people whose lives you're involved in, are they better because you're connected to them? Are we helping them grow? You know, one of the questions we ask all the time as a church, and it's, it's a scary question to ask. If we closed our doors tomorrow, would anybody know? Does it matter? You know, I think it's one of the questions we've been asking for a long time as human, humanity. Do we matter? Does what we do actually mean anything? There's stories about it. You can read one of a, a famous pastoral story. I'll tell it again because some of you hadn't heard it before. There's a story of a little girl who's walking along a beach after a storm and there's thousands of starfish that are covering the beach. And she's walking along and she picks up each individual starfish and throws it as far as she can back into the ocean. And there's some adults further up the shoreline watching her. And finally this one guy walks down to her and he's like, what are you doing? You can't possibly make a difference. Look how many starfish there are. She pauses for a minute a little disheartened at the man's words and wondering if he was right. And all of a sudden, she bends down and picks up one more starfish, throws it with everything she has into the ocean, and she looks at the man and she said, I made a difference for that one. She bends down and throws another one, and that one. And soon after, he joins her and begins throwing starfish back into the ocean. And then all the other adults come down and they join them both. And before you know it, the shore is bare. You see, it's a heartwarming story, but I think it's more than that. I think it's actually the story of the biblical narrative. God has designed each and every one of us in a unique way to make a difference for his kingdom here and in our communities. Listen to the words of Ephesians 2, chapter 10. For you are God's masterpiece. He's created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. This verse houses in it the answer to the question that we're all asking, what difference can I make? And I think everybody asks this question. High school kids are asking this question as they try to figure out what's next in their life. And side ramp, can we pause for a minute? Adults, we make it extra hard on them and we need to stop. Like, which one of us had our lives figured out at 17? Had no clue what I was going to do at 17. But they're wrestling with that. What difference is it going to make? What school do I go to? Does it make a difference? What's God's plan? College students are asking it. As they're going through this program and getting these degrees and wondering, okay, I got it, now what do I do? What's next? 25 to 35-year-olds are asking it as, we, as they seek to find meaning in relationships and in work and does what I do actually matter? Should I stop doing what I went to school for and go do something else? 40 to 55-year-olds are asking it. As we wrestle with midlife crises 
and the fact that our kids don't listen to us anyway. So like, does it matter? Does what I'm doing matter? My guess is 60 to 75-year-olds ask it a little bit differently. They've got a lot more free time. What they used to do for 50, 40 to 50 hours a week doesn't there anymore. So now, what do I do and how do I make a difference? What about 75 plus? My guess is most folks who are there are looking back and saying, did I make a difference? And how do I make these last years count? You see, it's a universal question But I think this verse in Ephesians provides rich and meaningful answers. And we're going to look at what those are in just a minute. But welcome to week five of our At the Core series, where we're taking a look at who we are at the heart of Great Oaks. Who are we as a faith community? And if you're here with us for the first time, I am so glad that you are here. And I hope you walk away today understanding that we want to be a church that's striving to love Jesus and our neighbor every day in all that we do. So a quick review of where we've been up to this point. You should be familiar with this pyramid by now. We call it our vision culture pyramid. It's what's building us up. At the bottom of it is our purpose, to love God and love people. Next up from there is our beliefs. These are the core statements we believe we're going to hold to, we're not going to change. They form our identity But we're going to love you even if you disagree with those because that's the foundation of everything we do. Then we have our values. They form our guardrails. They keep us on the road, keep us moving forward, bring unity to us as a body. And we have our mission statement. All right, it's week five. Some of you have been here all five weeks, so we should know it. Let me hear it loud and proud so I know you're still awake. I know, it's like early morning still for some of us. But our mission is connecting Nice work, nice work. You guys are doing well. We're, we're starting to sink in. We're getting it. And for some are like, okay, this is great. We got the bottom four. When are we going to talk about the top two? I want you to mark this date on your calendar. April 28th to Friday night, we're inviting you, your family, your kids. Come here. We have free daycare or free babysitting. We're going to have dinner together as a church as we talk about moving forward. And we'll be unveiling in that that evening together what our strategies are, how we're going to know if we're effective in that, and we'll give you a taste of what our seven-year vision is going to be. And so please mark that on your calendar, plan to be here um, April 28th. But as we've walked through this, we've talked about three of our six values so far. Unimaginable transformation, because Jesus loves us too much to let us stay the same. Unassuming authenticity, because we genuinely love people the way they are. Unhindered faith, because Jesus calls us to live courageously. And this morning, our fourth value is unending development, because every person has a God-given purpose. Now, I want to pause for a minute. If you're following along or you're paying attention, we have now used the word purpose three times. It is on the bottom of our pyramid, It is in our mission statement, and it is in one of our values. And some of you are like, do those words all mean the same thing? No, they don't. So let me clarify that. Sorry, the English language limits us sometimes on words. When we come here, this is universal. The purpose at the bottom of our vision culture pyramid is what every follower of Jesus is commanded by Jesus to do. We're all, if we call ourselves followers of Jesus, we should love God first and love people second. 
Everybody, no matter what your job is, no matter how you spend your time, no matter what your role in life is, we should love God first and love people second, right? There you go. That's for everybody. But as we get into our mission statement and we get into this value of unending development, we get into this understanding that God has designed you and me uniquely. And we believe that as we connect everyone to Jesus, they get to experience community with us through groups and, com- and they get to impact our community as we go out. But they also get to discover that God-given purpose. But that purpose isn't something for most of us that we like wake up one morning and go, I finally know. I know what God wants me to do with my life, right? I think that's what some people believe. I've been in the church long enough to know that this like debilitates people because they're like, well, I need to know what God wants me to do with my life, okay? We think that is best discovered in a process and that for most people, we don't have that like light bulb moment when we're like, this is what I'm gonna do for the rest of my life. I mean, if I'm honest, I'm 44. I don't know what I'm gonna do with the rest of my life. I'm still trying to figure it out. But I'm developing, I'm growing. And so we wanna walk with people in that growth process. Vision pyramid, purpose is universal. Mission statement and this core value of unending development, it's individual. And we wanna come alongside to help people answer the question, what difference can I make? And don't miss the value, unending development, because every person has a God-given purpose. I want to read Ephesians 2.10. You can close your eyes if you want, just don't fall asleep. And I want you to let the truth of this verse sink over you. For we are God's masterpiece. He's created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us so long ago. You are a masterpiece. The God of the universe says you are a masterpiece. If you're like me, maybe you struggle a little bit with self-image and you look in the mirror every morning and you go, This is not a masterpiece. This is like spare tire, a little pudgy in the middle, a little height deficient, definitely hair deficient, beards gray. And we look and we're like, oh God, could you redefine masterpiece? I don't think you understand what you mean when you say that word. And if you get below the surface, got an ultra competitive nature. I hate to lose, like hate it. And God looks at us in all of that and says, you are my masterpiece. I created you. I made you unique. My son came and died on a cross to take all that brokenness All those pieces that feel like they've got rough edges and you're struggling with, Jesus forgave it all. And when God looks at us, he sees the blood of Christ covered us, making us perfect. He looks at us like Michelangelo looks at the Sistine Chapel and says, you are my unique masterpiece, a one of a kind. But I don't want you to sit in a museum 
right? I mean, if you put me in a museum and made me stand still, I don't think anybody's going to walk by and be like, oh, look, masterpiece. God designed us for a purpose, to use that unique creation to go out and to further his kingdom, to do good works that he designed for each and every one of us to do. And when we realize that we have a unique purpose and that purpose is for good, we understand that our purpose is more than our present or future career. It's more than just helping people because that's the good thing to do. It's more than figuring out what we're supposed to do. It's more than making or saving enough money. It's more than getting into that right school. It's more than getting on the right team. It's about the truth that God has invited us into his story And we get to walk alongside each other as we discover this invitation and see where it will lead us. It's a process. And to illustrate that point this morning, I want to take you to a biblical story that might feel a little bit more like The Bachelor and Survivor came together in this story than maybe a story you expect to find in the Bible. It's a unique story because in the middle of this story, God is never mentioned. Not by name, not by action, not in any fashion is God mentioned. If you don't know yet, we're going to take a look at the book of Esther. And we're going to look at how God uses normal everyday people like you and me to do incredible things. And I love this story because I think it actually fits our culture. Because how many of you have ever thought, you know what, it would be so much easier to follow God if I lived in the Bible times, right? Like if Moses could come and say, hey, we're walking out of Egypt and get to the Red Sea and the water parted and I got to walk across on dry land, I'd be like, okay, God, I believe, I get it. There's a pillar of fire out there. I'm going to follow it. I've never seen that before. Or if we were one of the disciples and we're in the boat and Jesus literally walks on top of the water. Right, like he doesn't like stumble, he just walks across the top of it. Or if we were there the day that Jesus died on the cross and three days later we were at the tomb, they put him and he walks out. Like we'd be like, okay, I believe, I see you physically present, but you're not here and that's hard. Esther takes away that excuse because Esther lives a story much like we do. And we don't have time to read the entire book. You'd probably fall asleep. It would be like bedtime reading with Jason if we just opened it up and started reading. So I'm going to retell it. But I want to encourage you. At some point this week, take 15 minutes. Sit down and read Esther, the whole story. And do a little work for yourself. Look at where God is acting and where God is moving and working even though we can't see him. There's your homework. Write it down. You can do it. There's no grades next week. All right, so we jump into the story. It's 100 years after the Israelites have been enslaved in Babylon. So they've disobeyed God. Babylonians come in. They take him into slavery. King Xerxes is in charge. He's not the best guy. If you've watched the movie 300, yes, same Xerxes as from 300. That's the historical character we're talking about. He's a real guy. They made a movie about him. And he has this party. He brings all his political leaders, all his military leaders together. And they're having a great time and Xerxes gets drunk, right? I'm telling you, it's not a, he's not a great guy. So when he gets drunk and he thinks the best thing he could do when he's drunk is bring his wife, the queen, out and parade her and her beauty in front of all of his male friends. Yeah, 
guys, don't take marriage advice from this guy. It is not worth it, right? So he brings Vashti out or tells her to come out and she's like, yeah, no, I'm not doing that. And he's like, fine, we're divorced. You're banished. Get out. You're no longer the queen. Okay, and so that's where our story starts. And it gets better because Xerxes is not going to be without a queen for long. And so he decides to send out his, his royal team to go out into his empire and bring back all of the beautiful young virgin women living in the kingdom and he'll pick his new queen, right? Can we just be honest? In today's day and age, this sounds a lot like sex trafficking. That's what he's doing. It's not a beauty pageant. I know some people are like, oh, it's a beauty pageant. It's not. He is taking girls who are pretty out of their home and bringing them to him to be his queen, right? And it's not enough that they're just pretty. They have to go through 12 weeks or 12 months of beauty treatments. Again, gentlemen, free marriage advice. Don't tell your wife, you know, maybe 12 months of beauty would help. It's not gonna help. You're gonna end up in more trouble, right? So he, they bring them there. They get oil, special oils on their skin, cosmetics over their face. They get a special diet. And when these women feel like they're ready to go in and spend a night with the king. They spend their night, and if he's pleased, they'll become the queen, right? There's a lot of discomfort in this story. I want to pause for just a second and and let you know, this is a godless king. God is not condoning the actions of Xerxes. Please don't walk out of here and be like, is God okay with this? No, not okay. Could he have interfered? Yes. Did he not? Yes. We don't know why he didn't stop it, but he didn't, right? So he's not condoning it. This is a godless king who's a historical figure, and this is just a retelling of that story. And in walks Esther. She's one of the women who gets gathered up, and she goes in. It's a good, so, and long story short, Esther wins the beauty pageant, this humiliating competition that she's forced into, and she becomes the new queen. And everything seems like it's going great because Esther's cousin Mordecai, who she lives with, the other good guy in the story, he is walking through the temple courtyards and he hears the king's royal servants talking and they're planning, these two generals are planning to murder the king. And so he goes to Vashti and he's like, hey, listen, I heard these two guys planning to murder Xerxes. You need to tell him, or not to Vashti, to Esther. So Esther goes back to Xerxes, says, hey, they're going to kill you. And my cousin Mordecai told me that. And so everything is going great. Mordecai saves the king's life. Esther is the queen. It's going well. And then enters the bad guy, Haman. And we don't know why Xerxes feels like he needs to honor Haman. The Bible doesn't really tell us. But he comes in, he's going to honor him. He makes him second in command. And Haman decides to say, because I'm second in command every time I walk down the road, you need to bow to me, right? Got a little bit of an ego problem. So he's like, just bow to me. And so he walks by and Mordecai's like, yeah, no, not doing that. There's a lot of that in this story. Yeah, not, not, not doing that. So he doesn't. And that makes Haman really angry. And so Haman then is like, you know what? We need to get rid of these Jewish slaves living in Babylon. Let's just annihilate them all. So he rolls a dice. That dice picks a date. Tells the king, would you issue a command to get rid of these slaves? We don't need them. They're a nuisance. They're not doing what, they want, what we want them to do. And Xerxes is like, okay. So he issues an irrevocable command to kill all the slaves, right? And the tension is building. So now his wife, who hasn't told him yet, is a Jewish queen. And he's just issued a command to wipe them all out. 
And Haman feels like things are going pretty good. Mordecai, on the other hand, is not doing so well. So he's mourning and weeping. This command is spread all throughout the kingdom. Mordecai, in the way they mourn and weep at that time, tears his clothes, puts them on a burlap sack. I guess when you're sad, you just want to itch. I don't know. So he puts the sack over him, pours ashes on his head, and walks through the streets, mourning and wailing and weeping at what has happened. And Esther hears this, and she's like, whoa, 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 what's going on with my cousin? Right? So she sends a servant out with new clothes for Mordecai, and she says, come back and tell me what's going on. Why is he so upset? And Mordecai says, the king has issued this decree to kill all of our people. Here it is. Take it back to her. And so that, uh, Esther is like, okay. And here's her reply. Esther 4.11. All the king's officials, even the people in the providences, know that anyone who appears before the king in his inner court without being invited is doomed to die unless the king holds out his gold scepter. So Mordecai's like, you're the queen. Go talk to him about this. Make him stop. This is her reply. And the king has not called me to come to him for 30 days. So Hathach gave Esther's message to Mordecai. Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all the other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go and gather together all the Jews of Susa, the city they're living in, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then though it is against the law, I will go in to see the king. If I must die, I must die. Mordecai shows that he remembers this faith, that God will be faithful to his people no matter what. And he's like, listen, Esther, if you don't do this, God's going to... God might not spare you, but God will be faithful to his promises. We have to know that. And then he asks her a question. You know, could it be that you're in this place for this time? So there's no miracle. There's prayer and there's fasting. And Esther walks in after three days into the court of Xerxes. He allows her to make a request. And he says, Esther, what would you like? Ask anything you want up to half my kingdom. I'll give it to you. And she says, I would like for you and Haman to come to dinner. And he's like, okay. So they come to dinner. They have dinner. They have a great time. Haman leaves dinner. He is high. He's doing great. He's had a fun time. He got to spend the night with the king and the queen. He feels really important. And he walks outside and he sees Mordecai. And he's like, would this guy just go away? And Haman has great friends. When you have the same character Haman does, you end up surrounded by great friends sometimes. And his friends and his wife are like, hey, let's build gallows tonight. Let's just build these gallows in the street and we'll, can, you can tell the king that he should hang Mordecai publicly tomorrow. And Haman's like, that feels good. I'm back in a happy place. We'll kill Mordecai tomorrow. Life will be awesome. So everybody goes to sleep, but the king can't sleep. And so the king does what maybe all of us should do. He decides he's going to read history books when he can't sleep. So he has his servant come in. And he's like, hey, read the books that tell everything that's happened while I've been king. And so they go back and they start reading these books and they find the story of Mordecai saving the king's life. And the king's like, did we ever honor him for doing that? And the servant's like, no. And he's like, okay, remind me of that in the morning. So he wakes up, 
Gets up in the morning, he's like, we need to honor Mordecai. And he asks his servant, is anybody in the palace? And they're like, like, Haman just walked in. And so Haman comes up and he's like, hey, Haman, I got a question for you. I want to honor somebody. What should I do to honor them? This is, this is where the story gets really good. Don't miss the humor here. Esther 6, verse 6. If the king wishes to honor someone, he should bring out one of the king's own royal robes as well as a horse that the king himself has ridden with one of the royal emblems on its head. Let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials and let him see that the man whom the king wishes to honor is dressed in the king's robes and led through the city square on the king's horse. Have the officials shout as they go, this is what the king does for someone he wishes to honor. Xerxes Excellent, the king said to Haman. Quick, take the robes and my horse and do just as you have said for Mordecai the Jew who sits at the gate of the palace. Leave out nothing you have suggested. Right, like total plot twist. Don't miss this, this is funny. Haman wants to kill this guy and he's about to go lead him around on a horse screaming at the top of his lungs. This is what the king does for someone he wants to honor. All kinds of great irony and humor in this story. And so he does that. He goes back to his house. He's, sh he's horribly shamed. He doesn't know what to do, but he knows he's got to come back to dinner because Esther's invited him and the king back to dinner that night. And so as they come to dinner that night, the king says, listen, Esther, we had dinner last night. You told me we'd have dinner tonight. What is your request up to half my kingdom? And Esther says this in Esther chapter seven, verse three. Queen Esther replied, if I have found favor with the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my request, I ask that my life and the lives of my people be spared. For my people and I have been sold to those who would kill, slaughter, and annihilate us. If we had merely been sold as slaves, I could remain quiet, for that would be too trivial a matter to warrant disturbing the king. Who would do such a thing, King Xerxes demanded? Who would be so presumptuous as to touch you? And you have to understand, Haman is about to find out for the first time that Esther is a Jew. Esther replied, this wicked Haman is our adversary and our enemy. Haman grew pale with fright before the king and queen. Haman just got caught. Can you imagine the color? I, I picture this as like a cartoon. The color literally just drops out of his face as he's sitting at dinner. The king has found out that the woman he chose of all the women in the land is one of the ones that Haman will execute on a certain day. And he's issued an irrevocable, irrevocable command. <clears throat> Long story short, Haman is hung on the gallows he built for Mordecai. Esther is given all of Haman's property, inheritance, all of that stuff is given to her. Xerxes issues a different command. He can't undo the first one, right? So he issues a second one saying that the Jewish people living in Babylon may defend themselves when people come to kill them. So they end up surviving. And Mordecai becomes second in command of the empire. Mordecai was honored by his people because of the work he did and the good and the welfare that he sought for them. <clears throat> My prayer for each one of us is that this story as you read it this week, will cause us to consider how God might actively be working behind the scenes in our lives. In the face of threats, in the face of tragedy, in the face of struggles, 
God is developing you for a purpose. And he wants to work that purpose out in each and every one of us. And I think Esther's story shows us four keys to how we understand and develop that purpose. First one, no matter who you are, God invites us into his story. You see, we can look at Esther and we go, oh, that's great, such a nice story. Esther did all the right things. Not really. Think about Esther compared to Daniel, if you know Daniel. Daniel gets brought in. He's told he has to eat this food and he's like, no, 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 I'm not eating that. I'll eat what I want to eat because I can't eat that food. Esther eats it. Esther breaks God's command by marrying, again, by force, not too much on her part, but by force, marrying someone who's not Jewish. That's against God's law. Esther, at best, is deceitful, at worst, lies about her heritage and who she really is as she comes into the king's court. God is developing Esther. Esther is growing And when Mordecai comes and confronts her with the truth that God is still God and whether he uses you or not, Esther makes a decision to do what is right in this moment. You see, we don't have to be there. We don't have to get all cleaned up and know everything before God can use us. God is orchestrating things in Esther's life as she develops, as she grows, as she changes. I think the story of Esther reminds us that there is nothing you or I can do or have done that makes us unusable for God's purpose. If you're like, Jason, you don't get it. I know you say God has a purpose for everyone. You don't know what I've done. I don't really care. Grace is bigger than what you've done. God loves you no matter what. And God has a purpose for you no matter what. We've got to grow. We've got to continue this unending development, this growth process. But he wants to invite you into his story. And as he invites us in, we're not going to be able to do this alone. Our second key is we need others to discover with us. See, Esther's living her life. She's the queen. She doesn't even know about this edict until Mordecai comes. And Mordecai tells her what's about to happen to their people. And it's in that moment that Esther realizes something. But the other thing that I find interesting is that Mordecai gathers these other people to pray and to fast and she invites people to pray and to fast. I wonder if the results would have been different if they'd skipped that step. You see, Mordecai goes and has a conversation. And church, we need to learn to have conversations like Mordecai has conversations. The truth is, some of us are still living in isolation even though we don't have to. How many of us drive our car into our driveway, right into our garage, close the door before we ever get out, walk inside, and if we see our neighbors in a week, it's just enough to wave at them and go back inside? Fuller Youth Institute has put out some interesting statistics about the effects of the pandemic on our teenagers. Three of these stats, I think, are not just teenage-specific. They actually affect all of us, but they definitely hit our teens. Listen to this first one. 10% of students who were active in the church heard from a religious leader in the first year of the pandemic. Let that sink in. If you had a youth group of 100 kids, 10 kids in a year heard from anybody inside the church. 
Ugh. Church, we have an opportunity to invest in people's lives, to walk alongside them, to do this together as we develop and discover God's purpose for our lives. Probably because of that stat, now 70% of those under 25 say post-pandemic they won't take relationships for granted. This is the best news we could ever get, church. Nobody should be able to do relationships better than the church. The Marvel Universe will always be more creative, will always have a bigger budget, and will always create better things to look at for our kids. We get to walk with them in the trenches. We get to walk with each other as adults and help each other discover purpose. And this last stat, I think this is just a shot at students because it's not just true for them. 58% of students don't like being told what to do. Uh, duh, thank you. We're raising teenagers. We get it. However, those teenagers are like that because you can ask my wife, I do not like being told what to do. Not, not the best way to get me to do anything, right? Just be like, hey, Jason, go do this. Uh, I was going to, but now no, not interested. But they do want help discovering. Isn't that what we all want? Do we want somebody to come alongside of us and help us discover the purpose that God's given for us? Church, when we read scripture, we hear about these two guys, Paul and Timothy. Paul's the older guy. He's been there. He's been a pastor in the church and he's developing Timothy, this younger up-and-coming pastor. Who's your Paul? Who's the person who's further along in life than you? Who can help you figure out what it means to be a good husband, a good dad, a good employee? Who can help you understand what it means to follow Jesus? And who's your Timothy? Who are you pouring into, giving your life to, helping develop, helping to discover this purpose that God has for us? Key number three, purpose comes in everyday situations. Following Jesus is what we do every day. Esther is going about her everyday life. I mean, it might seem like a crazy story to us, but it's the story she grew up in. She's not sitting being like, Jesus, tell me what I'm supposed to do. She's going about her everyday life. I don't think Andrew and Peter were like, oh, throw down our nets? I bet that means you're gonna be crucified in three years. They dropped their nets. They got invited to take the next step. They didn't know what the next step would be, but they had a choice in that day. Are we gonna do this or are we not? In 1996, when I sat in that church and I heard the pastor say, we need somebody to go babysit our kids. I had a choice. I could sit there and let somebody else go babysit the kids. Or I could respond to a work that I had no clue of what God was doing in my life. And I remember I looked at Corey, I said, I think we can do better than babysit. So I went back. I kind of enjoyed it. I was like, hey, it's kind of fun to work with kids. And so I went and talked to the academic advisor in college because I was thinking about changing my major because I was a physical therapy major and I didn't like science, so that wasn't going to work out great. And so we're going to figure that out. And so I went and talked to the pastoral ministry major and I'm like, so what do I, what's this all about? He's like, you should go talk to somebody who knew, who knew you growing up. So I went back to my children's pastor, great guy, loved him. He did a great job, but he was really direct. And I just kind of looked at him and I said, hey, this is what I'm thinking about. And he's like, I wondered if you were ever going to grow up enough. 
It was a fair statement. They'd watch me struggle. My youth pastor said, hey, yeah, I actually see these things. I've watched you grow over the last four years. And so I took the next step. Okay, I'm not gonna change this whole thing crazy because that's a lot of money. I'm gonna take one class. Let's see if I like it. Let's keep working with these kids. It worked out. I changed my major. I kept walking through stuff. I'm gonna be a youth pastor for the rest of my life. That's what I'm gonna do. Maybe kids, because kids are even easier. They don't have all the problems teenagers do, so we'll, we'll figure that out. And I just kept taking step after step after step, and God kept bringing people in my life to teach me and to show me. There was Lockwood who taught me what it meant to be a young husband and love my wife and raise my dog. Please don't judge him based on the behavior of my current dog. There was Bob who taught me what it meant to be a pastor, that your sermon's not near as important as showing up in the hospital when somebody's sick. It was each one of these guys. And so I didn't figure out what I was going to do at 17. I figured out at 41 that, hey, maybe God's calling me out of youth ministry and into this lead pastor thing, and that's terrifying, and I don't know where God's going to take me at 54. But I know I'm developing I know I'm living my faith every day. That's what we're asking. That's what God's asking of each one of us every day in our regular lives to take a step of faith, to trust where he's leading, be open to his promptings, and then step four, to realize that prayer allows us to have confidence in his purpose. Haman asks Esther a question. He doesn't tell her a statement. He asks her a question. What if? And it was through prayer and fasting that Esther realized this was her purpose and this was what God was asking her to do. So as we close this morning, Ephesians 2.10. For we are God's masterpiece, created anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. We want to be a church that's passionate about unending development because every person has a God-given purpose. And we want to walk alongside as we grow and discover what that purpose is. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've, done, what you've done. God looks at you and says, you're my masterpiece. And he's inviting you into his story. Mike Cosper, an author and editor, says this about Esther's story. It is precisely God's hiddenness that makes this story so hopeful. Whatever dark you are in today, whether by hapless circumstance or by your own actions, God hasn't forgotten you. Esther's story invites us to cling to hope, however small, and to have confidence that whatever evil might currently reign, the story of God is not finished in you. God's not done. He's not done with me. He's not done with you. Are we willing to take a step of faith to see what he has next? Will you pray with me? God, thank you. Thank you for seeing in each one of us what we can't see in ourselves. 
Thank you for the ways you designed us and knit us and made us. Thank you for the truth that we are all your masterpiece. Even when we don't feel like it, even when we feel broken and flawed and useless, you look at us and say, you're my masterpiece. God, we pray for courage. Courage to take the next step. Esther needed courage to walk into that throne room and risk her life. We need courage to take the next blind step to where you're leading us. God, bring people in our lives who can ask us questions, who can help us discover, who can help us wrestle, who can help us grow. And lead us to others who need someone to pour into them, who need someone to help them develop. May we never stop growing, never stop developing, never stop seeking to live in your purpose as we take one step after another. We love you and we pray all this in Jesus' name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.